Welcome to the Life Self Mastery Podcast, where we bring in entrepreneurs who have created online businesses and improved their lifestyles. Here's your host, Rohit Malhotra. Hi everyone, this is Rohit from Rise to Mastery and I'm excited to have Mini Ingersoll, who's a partner at Tainment Tain Ventures, which actively invests into great teams. They invest early and love working with technical founders who are passionate about what they're building. Prior to Tainment uh, um, Mini was a founder and CEO at Shift, an online marketplace disrupting the $1.2 trillion car industry by providing a better experience. Uh, she's a host of LA Venture Podcast and she's done an MBA from Howard Business School and a bachelor's from Stanford. Welcome to the show, Mini. Thanks so much for having me. Glad to be here. Awesome. So, you know, uh, you, you have an interesting journey. You uh, you started from MBA, you worked in Google, you you did your own thing, and then you uh, got into investing. Uh, you know, what got you really interested to get in uh, to the, you know, the crazy world of startups and VC world? <laughs> uh, I mean, mostly I fell into it. Uh, you know, at some point, you know, fairly recently after I had exited Shift. I um, I realized that I was my skill set was really early stage companies. I don't think I could be at a big at a at a later stage company. I'm not sure like the structure would really work for me. I love starting things and and then I grow out of them or they grow out of me. Um, and so being at the early stage, it just it finally dawned on me like that's that's kind of what I have grown into and that's where my skill set is and and I like the sort of fast and messiness of it all and I think. Um, it's lucky because there's a lot of, you know, fast, messy startups to be to be around and I enjoy it. Very interesting. And uh, you know, you, you went to Stanford and, and Howard, you know, did you did you always want to, you know, go to Stanford and Howard to for, for your bachelor's in MBA? Yeah, I mostly did always want to. Uh so I'm I'm from Southern California and Stanford was kind of my dream school. Like it looked amazing. <laughs> And, uh, you know, you get, you go visit the campus. It's beautiful. Everyone's out playing Frisbee and yet everyone's really smart. And, um, and I got there and actually it was really hard. (laughs) Um, so, uh, you know, the freshman year it was, it was, it was sort of more fine, but I got into computer science and this is the nineties. Um, and CS was a really hard major. And so by kind of my last year at Stanford, uh, I was starting to wonder whether I really was as smart as, you know, some of my peers or something. I, mean, I was a good student, but, um, but then now I look at my peers and it's like Marissa Mayer, who was the CEO of Yahoo and, you know, sort of the Larry and Sergey's of the world. And it's like, well, okay. So, so I had a tough peer group to compare myself to, but I think, you know, I think it did give me a good perspective on just like what really good looks like. So, um, yeah. And then Harvard Business School. Yeah, I think I did want to go there, but also there was a, a function of um, I was at a startup that had IPO'd in March of 2000 and then the market crashed. And so there was a little bit of everyone was doing layoffs and the dot-com boom had bust. And and so business school was kind of a chance to catch my breath. Oh, interesting. And uh, I know it's a controversial question, but you know, why, why Harvard for the MBA and why not Stanford? Oh, I didn't get into Stanford. <laughs> I might have gone. I might have gone to Stanford, although I probably would have. <laughs> um, but in retrospect, actually, I'm from LA. I'm very sort of California-ish, um, I would say. And so, being in Boston and going to business school, 
I think it really helped me understand you know, as soon as I finished business school, and this is 2002, I came right back to California. And it sort of helped mm-hmm. me understand where I fit in in the world. Um, and, uh, and and in 2002, I, I was one of the only people that, you know, I tried to get a bunch of my friends to come work at Google and they wouldn't. Um, you know, people were not really interested in Silicon Valley at the time. So, um, so I'm glad to have had that experience. And it was a good experience. Interesting. And, and, you know, you, you talked about Google, you know, how did you get your job in Google? Uh, and, you know, why did you look at, uh, wasn't a very uh, known startup back then, but, you know, how did you get your entry into Google? Uh, gosh, we have to go back a ways, right? It's 2002. So, um, hmm. so a few things. Number one, there was on the homepage, it said, you're brilliant, we're hiring. And my mother, my mother took a screenshot and sent it to me and was like, Minnie, look, <laughs> they're hiring. And um, and I was graduating from HBS and everybody else in my class had a job and they were all going to be management consultants and bankers and private equity people. And they all had their jobs lined up like five months ahead of time. And I was determined to go find a startup and Google was already 500 people. And I was like, it's so big. I'm not sure it's 500 people already. Um, but it turns out, you know, obviously that was just the beginning. Um, but then also I was really into the Google toolbar at the time. And I thought that Google toolbar was this brilliant product that got me all excited about how convenient search could be. So, you know, pretty random, but also I'd, I'd known Marissa, I'd known some of the early Google people. Um, but yeah, I mean, when I interviewed, I interviewed with Eric, Larry, and Sergey and Mm -hmm. Soller and Susan and, you know, Marissa. So it was, it was a quite, quite a great place to end up. Yeah, interesting. And, uh, you know, you, you spent, you know, close to 11 years in, in Google. Now, what was uh, some of your biggest, you know, takeaways from, you know, Google? I understand, you know, yeah, the, the interview process was very rigorous, but, you know, what, were, what was your experience uh, while staying in Google? Yeah, I mean, so much, so much. I think, you know, now with a venture capital hat on, it's kind of interesting how Google sort of resembles a VC fund or or Alphabet does really in that, you know, every time you might have had an idea or something um, and you want to go pitch the, the Google leadership, the question was essentially, is this a $5 billion business? Um, and because really once you're at Google scale, you can't, you know, you can't take up, you know, Eric, Larry, Sergey, you know, you can't take up their time with sort of like, I've got this new little feature that might change things a little bit, right? It has to be world changing ideas. Um, and you know, it was interesting for Google as Google grew up, just like, who do they look at? Who does, who does Google, this is sort of pre-alphabet, like who does Google become? Like what sort of company both does self-driving cars and does, search and email and everything else. Like what sort of, you know, is that Berkshire Hathaway? Like what's the, I don't know. I'm like, there weren't a lot of equivalents to look at. So, um, so just that like stretching your brain to always think bigger. Um, and then there was just a lot of tactical stuff. So, you know, hiring or OKRs or all of those things that when I then went to start my own company, when I went to start shift, um, we just said, let's mostly let's copy what we thought Google did well, which was a lot of those things. And Google had, I can't remember, but someone just told me it's like 4,000 people in the people ops team at Google. It's something huge like that. Maybe it's, you know, it's thousands and thousands of people. And those people are 
smart data scientists, you know, uh, thoughtful HR professionals who have thought about like, what's the best way of setting up your, um, your 300, your 360 review process. And so like, they've spent a lot of time figuring out what works, what doesn't work, you know, how many interviews is the right number of interviews for your interview panel. Like, let's copy a lot of that stuff. Uh, and so, you know, I, I probably learned a lot of all that operational stuff and just took it with me. Right, right. Interesting. And, you know, um, after all, you work for, you know, you know Corp America and uh, shifted, you know, a uh, shift, uh, you know, how, how did that uh, trans- transition happen? And, you know, why, why did you want to build uh, something in, you know, an online marketplace, of course? Oh, that's a good question. <laughs> <laughs> it's funny because now I'm a VC and I get a lot of pitches for people who are doing used cars. And I'm like, yeah, gosh, now that I've done so much in used cars, um, you know, maybe I've done enough for one lifetime. But, uh, but it, it, you know, it was a really interesting business, actually, almost more of a data business than than a used car business in a lot of ways, because actually, in order to be a marketplace, um, if you're a reasonably centralized marketplace, which we were, meaning we were doing a lot of of stuff centrally, as opposed to sort of having it be done by the buyers and sellers themselves. So we were pricing cars and pricing cars is a really interesting business. And probably you could build a whole business, you know, shift is much more than just pricing cars, but you could build a whole business that is just pricing cars. Um, and, and it's a pretty interesting data challenge. So that's one thing, but, but practically what happened was I was on maternity leave. Um, so, you know, to be yeah, very specific about what happened is I was on maternity leave from Google with my first child and thought I'll take ahead of time. I thought I'll take six months off. Um, I'll really spend time with, at home with my baby. And then a few months into that, I realized I, I'm not, I, it's not my sweet spot is being home with a baby. Um, and so I just have too much energy to do things and sort of out of that uh, excess energy that I've always had, um, uh, my co-founder and I uh, started Shift. He actually had the idea and, and had been talking to me about it for years. He was at Google uh, with me and, um, and I actually wrote him an angel check and then I went on maternity leave. And while I was on maternity leave, I fully got sucked in and just, you know, started showing up at his house every day and thus became Shift. Oh, that's that's quite interesting. And, uh, you, you know, you, you mentioned that, you know, uh, uh, were you doing the pricing for the cars or, you know, how, how does it happen in the marketplace? Uh, isn't it uh, from the supply, you know, where, uh, where most of the pricing happens? Yeah. Um, so for the most part, some of our pitch to sellers. So if you've got a used car, shift says, we will take care of selling your used car for you. And most people are not very good at selling their used car. And so that that is sort of the fundamental pitch, which is one, we will price your car correctly. Two, we will... Um, advertise it. And, and actually, you know, there's all these people who have SEO'd essentially Google, right. Or who have, um, you know, who, who, you know, optimize their rankings on Google. Well, it turns out most people post their car on Craigslist. They don't post it on auto trader. They don't post it on um, cars.com, car gurus, whatever. And so when we started, we said, we will just help you get more exposure for your car. We will price it correctly. We will show up to your house. We will pick it up. We will then, um, you call it car reconditioning, which is, you know, getting it ready for a sale because 
for, especially for the higher end cars, you know, you can put in a thousand dollars of work and sell it for a few thousand dollars more. Um, but really all of that was really our value proposition. Um, and then on the pricing specifically, you know, Kelly Blue Book, which has book in the name, it's not a dynamic pricing algorithm, right? It doesn't say, well, if your neighbor is also selling a blue Camry for $1,000 less than your blue Camry, well, your blue Camry is not going to be worth the same, you know, Kelly Blue Book can tell you whatever you want, but like you're, 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 you're under, you're overpriced compared to your neighbors. So there's a lot of that that is, um, that has a lot of nuance. It's not obviously just what your neighbors are selling. It's what's selling at auction has a big influence. Um, and your different options and options on your car depreciate very differently. So, um, so yeah, we spend a lot of time figuring that out. Interesting. And, uh, you know, you also, uh, were, were raising uh, money and you know, building, building a company. Uh, what was, what was the entire process like, because uh, you ended up sending a company for, for less than a billion dollars. And, uh, you know, uh, what, what are your takeaways on, you know, what does it take to, to raise money uh, to, you know, grow a high growth startup? Yeah, so so we ended up uh, going public just at the end of last year in, in 2020 um, via a SPAC. So that was an interesting process. And, you know, in terms of raising money, gosh, it was such a mixed. I could talk to you about this for hours and hours. Right. So. Um, so. So different, different stages, different things happened. So a lot of our early money was, was um, scrappiness. Um, and, and to some degree, uh, yeah, it was scrappiness. And, and we found, we just were buying and selling cars off Craigslist, right? And we were selling the cars on Craigslist. We were buying them on Craigslist. These are what car flippers have always done. Um, and so there wasn't anything all that unique about what we were doing. And people say, like, we didn't even have a website, really, right? Um, But people say, get out and market, and you will learn things. And we did get out and market, and we learned things just doing that. Um, And one of the things we learned, and again, we're in San Francisco, was that a lot of the people who were selling their car with us were buying a Tesla, um, oh. and this is very Bay area, of course, but it turns out that Tesla doesn't want your gas car. They kind of turn up their nose at the gas cars. And so unlike a dealership, cause they're a direct manufacturer selling their cars, they won't take your trade in. And so a lot of people, they then have a car that, you know, Tesla won't take as a trade in. Anyways, we saw this as a great opportunity and we went and uh, started sitting in all the Tesla showrooms, um, and, uh, essentially, whenever someone was buying a Tesla, we'd be like, walk over and be like, hi, we are, um, you know, we're here to help you sell your car. And so it ended up that Tesla appreciated it and and the buyers uh, or the sellers appreciated it. And, and that led us to an interesting partnership with Tesla early on that led us, I think, to our Series A. I mean, that wasn't the only reason by any means that our Series A happened, but uh, it certainly lended some credibility to us to to have managed to secure a major partnership like that. And that was, you know, again, just sort of happenstance by being where we were. Mailman is an email assistant that shields you from unimportant emails, minimizing interruptions and making your days calmer and more productive, you can visit mailmanhq.com and use the code LSM, uh, which gives you the benefit of 15% off for the first year on the annual plan, uh, which already has 20% discounted compared to the monthly plan. 
So you can visit mailmanhq.com and use the code LSM. No, uh, this is interesting because, uh, you know, you, you talked about uh, SPAC uh, and, you know, there's been a rise of uh, in SPACs over the last few years. Uh, why do you, what do you think are the you know, primary drivers uh, for, for SPAC and do you think, uh, you know, it's, it's better than IPOs and direct listings? Mm, um, SPACs are fascinating, right? Like, I don't have the exact numbers in front of me, but I think there were order of magnitude, there were about... 300 IPOs in the US in 2019, let's say, total IPOs. And in February of this year, there were 100 SPAC IPOs. In March of this year, there were over 100 SPAC IPOs. So just like the the landscape. And then April dropped off a cliff. I think there were like 10 SPAC IPOs. Um, But I mean, it's just such a fascinating opportunity. It's an opportunity for companies that are um, sort of of shift size. Let's say shifts about a billion dollar company. I think you mentioned that something like that. Um, right. It's not a five billion dollar company. It's not a ten billion dollar company. Which it used to be that you know the bankers and everyone else would the markets were really there to take Airbnb public or something, right? It, the, the big companies and you had to wait longer. Um, and I think it's just going to have fascinating effects on. And so now companies that are billion dollar companies can go public via SPAC. Um, and it's, it'll have all sorts of effects for our industry, the venture industry, right? I'm a seed stage investor. And one, I think it means my portfolio companies will have opportunities to go public and will have opportunities for liquidity, but it also means, I mean, one interesting thing, I think it's all early days, but there are all these SPACs with all this capital now. So, um, or companies that have just done this reverse merger that are now public companies they have a lot of money um, and they've got really uh, intense growth projections that they've promised to their investors. And I, I think that'll probably lead to a lot more um, ac- acquisitions. And so I, I think while it's mostly po- uh, positive that our companies can get liquidity, I also think, you know, maybe from a sort of w- weird VC lens, you know, there might be a lot more exits in the $150 million exit because, or $100 million exits because they're the companies that have a lot of cash on their balance sheet. So it remains to be seen, but um, it, it's a big deal. <laughs> right, right. Yeah, no, absolutely. Uh, you, uh, you, do you have any idea about the free structure uh, when we compare SPACs to, to, to IPOs? Uh, and, you know, what are the timelines for, uh, for SPAC versus IPO? Yeah, I mean, I think that's one of the advantages that is usually touted, which is that the costs and the timelines are are shorter, smaller. Um, you know, my experience of it was, yes, and I think that was a real appeal for shift. And one of the reasons we decided to SPAC was, uh, was because of the timelines and, and there was a lot of market uncertainty when we were deciding to do this. And, um, you know, there was a COVID big, you know, it was early days of COVID and we really didn't know what was going to happen. And so that, the, that was appealing. So it's a compressed timeline, but you still have to do all of the things, right? And so there was an aspect of, great, it's faster, but it was like all of those things that you have to do to be a public company just get smooshed into a shorter timeline. So, you know, it, it, the way we experienced it was a, as very intense. Now, I'm not at shift, so I wasn't you know, part of that intensity, but I certainly um, 
I, you know, I'm certainly still close with all the shift team. And so, and even just being a shift founder and, and negotiating that, um, it was certainly an intense process. Yeah, interesting. And, uh, you know, when, when uh, investors, you know, when they evaluate SPACs, you know, what, 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 what do investors look to invest uh, into? Uh, and, you know, if, say, a fund wants to invest into a SPAC, can, can LPs, you know, back out if they're not happy with the, with the SPAC partner they have? Yeah, I mean, I don't, I, I sit in sort of the really traditional early stage venture role. And so I don't, right. um, you know, it's not like the sort of thing that I would do professionally, right, is right. is invest in, in, in SPACs as part of 10110. Um, you know, I think that there's, there's kind of two types of investors, right? They're the investors who are investing into the SPAC, the blank check company before it is identified a target. Um, and I think those investors have the option of uh, getting their money back once the target is identified. So it's it's almost an option that they're getting. And, and with those, it's really a unit that they get. There are warrants attached to that. And that actually has been one of the big changes that the SEC changes needing to treat those warrants, I, th- I believe, as liabilities as opposed to equities, although I'm going to be a little hand wavy here. Um, but I think, you know, those investors are seeing it as sort of this option, I think. And then when you go to raise your pipe, which is your, uh, you know, when when once the target is identified and the 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 SPAC and the, the target company go on their roadshow together, um, they work on raising a pipe, a, a private investment in public entity, I think is what the pipe stands for. Um, and those investors, what you're trying to do there is almost swap out the hedge funds and swap in the long-term investors with long time horizons so that your company then has investors who are in it for the long-term and believe in the company and the company's long-term prospects. So, um, so there's different different sorts of investors, sort of the the first investors um, with a different sort of motivation than the investors who who come in once the target has been identified. Got it. And, uh, you know, I wanted to understand, you know, what are the, what are the thesis behind 10-1-10 ventures and are you sector and, you know, geography uh, uh, agnostic? Yeah. So 10-1-10, we're a early stage fund based here in LA. And, um, you know, we our sweet spot is uh, a seed stage investment. We often talk about it as engineer turned entrepreneur. We like the more techie things, doesn't have to be. Um, and we do very little in consumer, not none, none, but like a consumer brand would probably be outside of what we'd be interested in. But there's definitely some, you know, Shift is actually a consumer company with a lot of engineering behind it. Um, but we like that. On my, I have two partners, so there's three of us. Uh, and we are all engineers turned entrepreneurs. Um, when I joined, so I moved to LA only a little over two years ago, and um, 10110 sort of had the reputation of being the nice and nerdy fund, which was very appealing to me. Uh, and, and, and I think, you know, has that reputation for a good reason. And I think my partners have both built multiple large, huge companies, um, Gill's company was AdSense, which was, you know, tens of billions of dollars. Uh, Google acquired AdSense and David has had three venture-backed businesses. Anyways, I sit in the room with them 
And, and, uh, and I work with our portfolio companies. We have almost 80 portfolio companies at this point. And I learned so much, like all of that stuff that I sort of thought I was doing one way. You get to watch your portfolio companies sort of approach problems in different ways. Um, and then I get to watch my partners just be brilliant advisors, board members. Um, and I, I go to them with a lot of my questions. So, I mean, it's, it's been a, I, I, I didn't set out to be a VC, but it's been intellectually, it's exceeded all of my expectations. Um, but your question was, what do we invest in? Which is, we're pretty much generalists. We like B2B. Um, we have certain sectors like logistics, uh, health tech, prop tech that we have like more investments in, but um, but we're pretty open. Right, interesting. And uh, you, you, you talked about you know, around 80 companies in your portfolio. You know, how do you look at portfolio diversification and you know time allocation across portfolio? Um, how, how, how does all the three partners decide on that? Yeah. You know, for the most part, our companies kind of outgrow us <laughs> and, you know, and it's great. And they, you know, they get wings and fly off. Um, so, you know, we work very hard alongside them to help them raise this series A. Most of the businesses that we're backing are meant to be in the, the venture business. We're expecting to raise future rounds. Um, and so we work with them to raise a series A. We identify the partner at the firms who we think will be interested um, and, you know, often once they sort of raise their series A, certainly once they raise their series B, you know, we're no longer on the board. Um, we don't always even take a board seat. Um, and, you know, they've got just, you know, SoftBank, they brings a platform with, with them, you know, and they come in and, and, you know, we still sometimes get calls, but, you know, in terms of how we prioritize our time, it's usually with the companies that are still in that seed stage, sort of our more recent investments. Um, and, you know, most of our fund one investments are sort of off to the races or some of them have sort of, you know, not materialized. But um, but for the most part, it's with the newer investments we spend a lot of time with. You know, when we get started, it's like a weekly meeting, maybe a monthly meeting, but it's pretty, it's pretty, uh, pretty frequent. Got it. And, uh, you know, how, how do you look at uh, reserve allocation across the, the companies that you invest in? Oh, another one of those topics that you could talk about for hours. <laughs> uh, gosh, right now we're about one to one in terms of we, you know, we'll 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 reserve the same amount as we put in in our first check. Um, but you know, one of our things is just always listening to the market and what's going on. And so, um, a big thing we talk about is getting a lot as much allocation in our first check as we can. Okay. Um, and so, in our first check. That's when the valuations are reasonable. <laughs> right. um, and, 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 I mean, they just, and so with, we're a reasonably small fund. And so we'll write a million dollar check into someone who's raising, let's say, $2 million round, maybe a $3 million round. But, you know, the valuations are still something where we can end up with 10% ownership, that sort of thing. Um, but, you know, hopefully if we're doing our job right, the Series A, the Series B, you know, even if we write a million dollar check, we're getting you know, little, you know, um, you know, maybe fractions of, of a percentage or something, right? Like, so, so it really is um, writing a large first check and then having reserves to support companies that might need like bridge rounds or that sort of thing. Um, but we stop investing after the series A because the valuations get too high. And, uh, you know, when you invest your first check, is, is it possible to have, you know, 20% stake in the company? And, you know, do, do you think ownership matters in startups or is it more important to uh, be, in the, be in the right space in the right company? 
Yeah, I mean, you can. So, you know, let's just say that we're investing a million dollars. Um, we can invest in companies that are have a post money valuation of five million or ten million or twenty million, right? And or or anything else. But you know, it, it's just balancing sort of the risk reward there and where companies are um, and what's been de-risked. And so it's nice. A lot of the companies that we invest in do have product in market. They've got customer validation, but they aren't yet, you know, hockey stick growth or else we, or else their valuations would be too high and they wouldn't, you know, we wouldn't be there. Um, we also like it when it's early because usually um, I guess it sort of makes us feel needed, but like, you know, they don't have, there's still, they don't have fully built out executive teams that have everything dialed in. And so there's still room for sort of generalist expertise, which is, I think what we have a lot of operational generalist experience from a couple decades in places like Google. So, um, so yeah, I mean, we could invest it at 5 million post money valuation, but those companies are usually earlier. Um, and, and, you know, we're not bargain shopping. I think if you just are shopping for bargains, then you're probably invest. I mean, what you don't want to do is get so obsessed with valuation that you invest in companies that don't have as good prospects. So I'd rather invest in the companies that are going to be billion dollar companies um, than sort of always be too bargain sensitive. And yet I still need the, the allocation. So it's a fine line. Got it. And uh, you know, how do you, how do you assess and think about market size uh, in, in these times? Yeah. Well, the thing I tell, it depends on my audience. When I'm talking to like MBA students, I tell them that I hate the Tam Tom Sam slide um, be because what happens is I feel like entrepreneurs now um, have studied entrepreneurship and, and that's something that I hadn't done. Um, and, and they study and there's sort of a formula of how to, what do VCs expect and so people come and they make a Tam Tom Sam slide and they go through the exercise of a bottom up or top down analysis because they think that's like what they are expected to do. And what I really care about is market size is I want someone who looks me in the eye and convinces me that it's going to be huge. Right. And and some of that, yes, is I do need to understand like the used car market in the U.S. is like a one point two trillion dollar market. Right. I don't need to do much more than just tell you that and say, even if we were only, you know, a couple percent, we would have a huge business. So there's, um, it depends what business you're in. And yes, if you're selling toothpaste, I might need to understand how big the toothpaste market is and what percent of that market you could possibly own. But what I don't want is just like a formulaic answer. I want real vision on how big it, it's the vision aspect. It's the vision and the market size kind of combined. Today, I have an interesting stat for you. Did you know that the founder of Beautiful Lives increased the social media presence by 10x, they managed to publish consistently and effortlessly using a robust social media management tool called Social Pilot. Social Pilot is a cost-effective social media tool that helps businesses scale their social media marketing efforts. Use lifestylemastery.com slash social pilot to get a 14-day free trial. And, uh, you know, do you use any framework on uh, uh, how do you evaluate uh, and assess competition when, you know, when, when a, whenever a portfolio company is pitched? How do you, how do you assess competition for uh, for a particular company? Um, I would say competition we assess, but it's not probably in our, it's definitely not in like our top three, top few like things. Um it's there and it depends on the company, um, how much we focus on the competition. But uh, I, I'm mostly a believer that 
uh, that you want to just execute on building the thing that that you set out to build and not uh, overthink what the competition is doing. That said, what I the other thing I really do care about is people who know their space extremely well. And especially because I'm usually doing B2B. Well, it's probably true in consumer too, but you know, I, I want, there's a level of expertise in the space that I care about. So it's not necessarily competition, but it's understand really well who your user is. And maybe it's a, why would they buy your product over someone else's, but just who is the, who is the buyer? Who is the customer? Sometimes those aren't the same. What is their budget? What are they, how are they deciding what to buy? And that bleeds into competition, but it's, it's more about the depth of understanding of the customer. Got it. And, uh, you, know, you know, Mini, you've been a successful um, operator, a founder, and now a, a VC. Uh, but, you know, you know there's a lot of uh, VC funding, which, is, which has gone down for, uh, for uh, CEOs who are women in the last couple of years. You know, what, uh, how can we get more women to, you know, start more companies in, uh, in this year and next coming year, especially in uh, Southeast Asian uh, economies and, you know, uh, elsewhere in the world as well? Yeah, I mean, many different ways. Uh, so some of it is on the, let's say, the women, or and some of it is on the systems, right? And I think it's both. Um, and, you know, for me, occasionally I sit on panels where we talk about how hard it is to be a woman uh, in these roles, you know, raising money or... or um, for me, having a degree in computer science opened a million doors for me. Like, I'm not saying everything was easy because it wasn't. But it did open a ton of doors. So just encouraging women, like it is a great path to be on, to to be uh, female and in um, startups and in uh, tech. Uh, but but you know, I I think a lot of it is also just us thinking about our systems for how we decide, um, not just who gets funding, but how decisions are made. And so um, you know, for me, it's a. a at, at Google, like, let's say Google had Google product strategy meetings and you weren't actually asking for money. Usually at Google, the, the, the resource was engineering resources that was scarce. There was plenty of money. Um, but, you know, if the way decisions are made is you have to come in and pound the table and, you know, be, you know, pound your chest about your five-year, you know, uh, projections, well, that might lend itself to people always getting funding or, or, or the people who are sort of chest pounders. So I think we need to make sure that we are aware of how we make decisions and that those decisions are being made in ways that, you know, where we can actually hear and listen and make space for people who are, you know, not table pounders. Right. And, uh, you know, Mini, you've also been a, a content creator. Uh, you run the LA Venture podcast. Uh, you know, what, what uh, and you, you've uh, done your 100 episodes. Uh, you know, what, what were some of your biggest learnings while, while running the podcast? And any advice for, uh, for me as well as for other, you know, podcasters on, uh, on building a community? Yeah, I mean, I love I love hosting a podcast. It's been the most fun. It's a ton of time for me. I think yeah. we're, yeah, you know, I it, it is it does take a lot of time. Um, I don't think I've done a great job building community, so you don't have to tell me on that one. Um, I think that you know, I was chatting with one of my guests, uh, Carrie Bennett from Upfront. She does amazing content, and and she's a marketer by background. And she was talking about how 
people always say, look, I want to have a blog. I want to be a thought leader. And her question is, do you actually enjoy the work? Because if you want to have a blog so that you can be a thought leader, but you don't like writing, then it's going to be a horrible like pursuit for you. And so I think it's, for me, I love having my podcast where I talk to VCs. Um, and so I actually enjoy the making of it, which makes it possible to keep doing it. Um, it's beneficial for me because I am a VC. I was a new VC. I got to talk to all these experienced VCs about what they're doing. Um, and then it's also given me more appreciation for content creators everywhere. Um, okay. And, uh you know, just putting yourself out there a little bit. Like there are occasionally like guests or episodes where I just like, that didn't really work. It was kind of boring. And then like, and I put it on myself. I feel like I didn't bring out the best in my guests. Um, but you still have to publish things. So, um, and I will say I edit mine probably more than you edit yours. I, I do think editing makes such a difference. Like, it's just amazing. You can make your guests say things almost. I mean, I'm not, I'm not manipulating my guests that much, but like, <laughs> You can they they can sound much smarter or much more argumentative or much more self-deprecating depending on where you put the cuts. And oh, I think that's a, that's a really interesting insight. And maybe I'll I'll uh, edit more uh, often in my in my podcast going forward. Um, yeah, you know, I quickly want to do the top three. What's your favorite business book? Yes, you just you um you told me right before a taping that you were gonna. I don't read. I really don't. I, I oh. like. It, uh, so that's that's going to be my guilty confession. I'm not much of a reader. Uh, any any I, newsletter or any podcast that you recommend people? Oh, I mean, I podcast all the time. So that's some of it is that I got spoiled because my news would come to me from like, I don't know, probably Kara Swisher. I do pivot. I listen to all the pivots. I like I have a love-hate relationship with it. Now I listen to the All In podcast from Jason Calcanis. And again, yeah. love-hate relationship. Um, uh, tech Meme Ride Home is probably like, a basic, just give me my basic tech news on my ride home. So yeah, so that's probably where I get more of my news nowadays. Got it. And uh, you know, if you could go back in time when you when you started uh, uh, working with 1110 Ventures, what is the one thing you would have focused on or done anything differently? Yeah, I mean, throughout my career uh, and probably even more so in shift, I think I probably would have just done more, like less worrying if I could, like, that would probably be the, if I could like go back and tell myself some advice when I was a younger self, I would have said like, don't worry about it. Like it's like, there are times it sucks. Like everyone would say, isn't Google the greatest place to work. And at times like my projects were late and I didn't like my manager and like, um, and I think I, I would try to tell myself it'll all be fine. It'll turn out fine. But like, sometimes you just have to sort of mantra I like is show up, tell the truth, hope for the best. Um, and like, sometimes you do that and it's not enjoyable, but you just have to keep doing it. And then at times it gets better. Got it. And do you have any favorite online tools, example, Gmail, Slack, Zoom? Yeah. I mean, to go back to what I said, my favorite tool right now, and it's so good is Descript. Um, and Descript is the best podcast editing tool or, or just editing tool. I only use it for podcasts, but it's incredible. Uh, and it made me inspired. It's so good that now I'm doing like oral histories. I just did an oral or whatever oral history, I guess, with my dad. Um, and like, because it's so easy just to record someone, you record them on zoom and then you can edit in Descript. And I feel like everyone should become, uh, audio content creators because it's so easy and fun to do. Yeah, no, absolutely. I think Descript is also one of my uh, favorite tools. Um, we'll, we'll put that in the show notes. Uh, maybe what is the best way people can reach out to you and, and know more about uh, 10 Ventures and uh, LA Venture Podcast? 
Yeah. So, I mean, they can, um, you know, they can just go and give my podcast five stars. They don't even need to listen. They just, you know, LA venture. Um, I'm pretty responsive on LinkedIn, like to thoughtful messages. Uh, that's probably the easiest. That's how I get a lot of cold inbound. And I, I try to engage as much as I can. Got it. We'll put that in the show notes. I mean, thank you so much for taking our time and speaking to us. I really enjoyed my conversation with you. Great. Thanks for having me on. Thanks for listening to the Life Self Mastery Podcast, where we teach you how to start and grow your online business. For more information, visit Rohit's blog at www.lifeselfmastery.com.